0: Hey guys, welcome to the Tech People Podcast. My name is Ken Coyne. I'm your host and founder, as well as head of technology at Ops Talent. I believe at the heart of any success story are the people who made it happen. Diversity, creativity, and innovation, when nurtured in people, can lead to an unbeatable formula. I created this podcast to share the experiences of some truly inspirational leaders on their journey to success. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Tech People Podcast. Today is my first in a series of fintech interviews, where we will interview people from different areas of this exciting space to learn what is trending and where is the industry going. My first guest is Dan Feeney, who is a fintech consultant based out of London. Dan has been working with a number of fintech companies around the world, and we're going to learn from him on his experience of current trends, where are the challenges, and what does the future hold. So welcome to the show, Dan. Great to be here, Ken. Thanks for having me. No, thank you. And listen, thank you for taking the time out to have a chat with us. I know it's your first podcast, so I'll try and be nice as I can with you. Um, listen, I always start by, could you just tell us a bit about you and your background and how you got into fintech?
1: Yeah, um, so I I guess I'm a global citizen now. I've lived in uh, five countries, and uh, so I grew up in America and I've spent time in, in the Philippines, I've spent time in Ireland, obviously I'm in the United Kingdom now, um, as well as a couple sort of backtrack trips. So I've been in many countries, and I'm living in London now because I do fintech, and this is a fintech hub, capital, so forth. My background is operations, a lot of commercial work, a lot of consulting, cross-retail operations, and and now the world of tech and finance merging together, whether it's fintech or techfin, it's kind of, uh, I think the conversation is all about partnership. So it's neither fintech or, or techfin.
0: <laughs> and how did you get I mean, what, how did you end up getting into fintech in that space?
1: Yeah. So there's a story there. when I was living in Dublin, I was, um, you know, doing tech recruitment. So my... Right. Clients um, were tech companies, and a lot of the clients were fintechs at the time. And this was 2015. Um, so the Web Summit had a spin out called MoneyConf and they hosted yes. the first one in June of 2015 up in Belfast. So we went up to Belfast from Dublin, and I don't know if it was a light, light bulb moment or some <clears throat> sort of a hallelujah. I said fintech is cool. I'll do this the rest of my career. Uh, and so here we are, five years later. Yeah, well, it, it kind of is, um, Ken, because, you know, for me, fintech is about data, right? Pure right. and simple. And if you combine the platform effect, the network opportunities, and then the trust and security that financial services should provide from both banks and insurance, that's super exciting. And those are kind of the oldest industries yet to be disrupted by technology. And that's another factor. Because they're, you know, they they're regulated very much. So move as fast as other industries, maybe. But also, there's a lot of risk aversion inherent because you're either managing other people's money or you're managing people's assets through a risk profile.
0: Of course, actually, before we get into you know about your experience in the fintech, in your opinion, I mean. You mentioned there previously London being a fintech hub. What
1: are the key fintech hubs around the world for you? I think it starts, fintech needs three things. It needs talent, it needs capital, and I think it needs, so it needs not just tech talent, but platform, you know, sort of startup talent, let's say, and that's its own niche that's grown up in the last 10 or 20 years, sure. It needs political capital and financial capital. So that's what makes London unique because you have a lot of talent. It's an international city. You have the center of government for United Kingdom and the four devolved nations. And then, of course, you have loads of capital. This is, even after Brexit, it's still a top three city in the world for finance. Interestingly enough, you compare back to America and you've got those three things in three different cities. You've got Silicon Valley, you've got New York and Washington and imagine put all three into one place like london and i think you've got a petri dish of excitement
0: yeah awesome how about um,
1: other cities like besides other oh, others well i'd say i would give that. five cities that strike me as today and tomorrow opportunities for fintech certainly singapore i'd say toronto i'd say shanghai more than hong kong because hong kong is just sort of being brought into the greater china so as i say Shanghai, Singapore, Toronto, I wouldn't give any other city in Europe, you know, there's probably a few vine for that, but there's no true financial capital other than London in Europe, certainly Mumbai in India, and probably Tokyo, I'd say. And again, these are engines of economic growth, they have fresh capital, they have a lot of talent, and they have political and regulatory drivers. Interesting.
0: So, talk to us about. I mean,
1: what's happening? Current trends in the fintech space. Well, if you asked me the question in February, I would say we're in 2020. But now we're probably in 2025, uh, because the digital sort of booster shot that COVID has provided. So we've all been brought into the future, whether it's data-driven, data-led, data insights, and of course, underneath that is things like. NLP natural language processing the artificial intelligence the automated you know the robotic process automation you know can that a lot of that happened in factories to increase productivity of making cars or making toys but now it's happening inside of banks and inside of insurance companies so you can have real time payments you can have real time credit decisions you can have real time analysis of company uh, balance sheets Imagine not looking at your numbers every quarter, but every, every hour. And that's actually what the companies like Amazon are doing already. It's just that the rest of industry and the rest of corporates have not caught up to that. That's how Amazon does it. Every day they can look at a full global spectrum of how well they are financially. And they don't need any, any money or any credit from banks. They just generate it all on their own platform. And these sort of capabilities were talked about in this digital transformation that we're going through, but COVID has been a booster and now we're living in 2025 and it's a great enabler for fintech as long as fintech can partner with bank and insurance because bank and insurance are still the giant regulated entities with millions of customers and fintechs. Fintechs don't have that, so it's a scale question through partnership.
0: Yes, I mean, because you mentioned there a lot of points, but I mean, I see, personally see a lot of challenges with that. I mean, scale of the size of the companies,
1: regulation.
0: Could you just talk to us about some of the challenges in your experience, what the kind of the key challenges are and what are we doing to
1: address? Them? So how how does a fintech struggle? Is that the question?
0: Yeah, well, even, even not even the fintech, even the, the big institutions and how they keep up with the fintechs.
1: Yeah, <laughs> how <do> they, well, <laughs> yeah, so... The fintechs, obviously, are venture-backed and receive money from the private equity world through yep. through venture capital, and more recently through SPAC. I'm, I'm not sure if they refer to this whole special purpose acquisition company, okay. which is basically, it's basically taking moonshots on people like Elon Musk. So now you're investing in people and their innovation rather than anything else, right? Because... That's what the venture capital would say. They'd say, well, I'm, I'm betting on the person, not because they pivot so often in the early days, Ken, these fintechs. But of course, the question of scaling is getting the proposition to the marketplace. If it's a consumer product, it needs eyeballs. It needs people to download the app. It needs people to use the app. Think of a, a digital bank like Monzo. If it's a business-to-business case, it has to integrate into the workflow. It has to plug into an SAP or an Oracle for the enterprise, for the core, you know, the platform. It has to actually validate the revenue model. And, you know, as as you know, through the startup world, you have the seed and the A and the B and the C, and then maybe you talk about a trade sale and exit or a public listing. So that's the sort of, and then you have the hockey stick, the famous hockey stick, where all of a sudden it just goes parabolic, right? The challenge is... Quite simply, for banks and insurance, are the culture, the hierarchy of culture, where it's quite pyramid and top down. A lot of the executives and the boards are of a different generation. They don't think or act or do digital yet. Also, those organizations are sitting on legacy infrastructures, sometimes mainframe IBM systems from the 1970s. So they can't get at their data. They can't do things in real time. There's too many layers of bureaucracy. And so forth, and so you know it's an exciting time when you just go pure data. Then you match the data-driven sort of technologies, the open source. Think of open banking. Think of the ability to think horizontally rather than vertically. So there's a lot of excitement happening, and again, it's driven by partnership. And if if you asked me from five years ago when I first got involved in fintech to now, yeah. that's been super accelerated by the COVID. It is all about enablement, partnership, trusted long-term relationships between the fast-moving kind of speedboats and the big oil tankers that have been around sometimes centuries, you know, HSBC in, in, in the UK, because a lot of, a lot of it has to be blue sky thinking, but then executing on the ground. So it's, you know, I could talk about this for hours, Ken, yeah. but, you know, it's the old and the new coming together to solve a problem.
0: Yeah, and I mean, are they actually, is it really happening? I mean, are these banks now transitioning? Are they, are, you know, going towards a digital? Can you, have you seen, like, the pal- effects? Or is it, are it still very much, like
1: I said, hierarchically very slow to move? Uh, it depends on the, you know, again, the non-executives, uh, the board level, the CEO, him or herself. You'll see um, Citigroup, um, is one of the top five universal banks, um, certainly in the West. And uh, they've just got a new woman coming in to drive the change for Citi because, you know, they've got hundreds of millions of customers and their competitors are Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, etc. So you'll see all of these banks have innovation teams. They have uh, corporate venture capital. But until the culture changes, that's going to be difficult. An example here in the U.K. that I'm watching is RBS, which is now rebranded to NatWest, and there's a woman, Alison Rose, driving that. And so she has to kind of change the mindset and the culture before some of this radical innovation embeds and the thinking changes and the customer becomes the core and the heart of the, of the mission, right? And again, a lot of the traditional legacy companies, um, the big banks, the big insurers, are product peddlers and they push out products. And so the relationship needs to be much more customer-centric. Back to my comment earlier about Amazon, which the only stakeholder that matters to Amazon is the customer, even more than their employees or their shareholders. It's all about the customer. And then the best fintech that does that, in my mind, that I know quite well here in the UK is Starling Bank. And, not so, and, and the themes running across all of that, from City to RBS, NatWest to Starling Bank, they're all led and championed by women. So there needs to be a gender balance at the decision-making level, I believe, to um, to drive some of this collaboration and communication that has to happen more at a horizontal than these command and control hierarchies. Yeah, I mean, that's a big challenge for a long time.
0: Do you see a change now, I mean, that gender, gender diversity? Um, more story.
1: outliers and exceptions than the standard, but these conversations are ongoing, yeah. I mean, diversity and, and, and inclusion, yeah.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned about partnerships. Is that also, I mean, these fintech banks partnering with mainstream banks, do you think? Or competitive partnerships, when you mentioned that? A lot of the drivers
1: for that are, are getting the data sets to talk to each other through open source API, the application protocol interface. So you'll see the companies of the likes of Plaid, which were bought by Visa, or Stockholm based Tink, T I N K. And they're basically building APIs outside of you know, so that the banks can talk to other banks, so that, you know, fintechs can work with banks. And so you have these sort of uh, data aggregators that are most interesting, and they provide this, I guess, this new digital pathway. Okay. So that, that will enhance the user experience, whether any device, web or mobile, but also can, most importantly, that the regulators can get full transparency of the data flows. Because now you know, you're talking about fully digital payment infrastructure. With real-time payments, you're sending money around the world in seconds rather than days. That wasn't even possible five years ago because okay. the technology wasn't built and deployed, and now it is. And you may, uh, it, sounds like, it, it sounds sure. like science fiction, but it's, yeah, yeah, this, yeah, yeah, is, yeah, this no. is reality. This is
0: really happening. Yeah, no, I see it. I mean, and regulation, do you still see that as a good or a negative impact on the whole fintech revolution?
1: The regulators need to work with other regulators. We need to go cross-jurisdiction, cross-market, even cross-vertical. Another area of concern is that the various state uh, regulators need to work closely with the data commissioners. And you can't harmonize it. Uh, In Europe, there's 27 jurisdictions, but even in a place like Ireland, the data commissioner needs to plug in very closely with the Bank of Ireland, right, Mm -hmm. or the, the central bank, right, so that the data talks to the regulator and the regulator talks to the data because in remember just even 10 years ago these things were done maybe annually by an auditor right and now if you can get real time data and you can see it and you can visualize it this stuff can happen in days not years right so it's a super acceleration driven by the technology
0: have you worked on in any interesting projects around this space you know with the mix of
1: the big corporates and the fintechs? There's a few companies I've worked with. So at any one time, Ken, I work with, let's say, three or four interesting companies. One I'm working with right now is a a user-generated platform. It's called One Zero Me, and it's basically a financial passport. So what happens is you own your data and you can move it with your consent, so it's full GDPR-compliant, you can move it from account to account, from company to company. But at the end of the day, you control the access to that data. And this is what's needed because for too long, the big techs have been making money off of us, the individual consumer, and we don't get any, we might get a little satisfaction, we might get a little bit of ease of use, we might get a little entertainment, but we don't get, you know, our information is harvested for their their end benefit. So that's. It's kind of a bottom-up, reverse pyramid business model. That's called One Zero Me. I'm working with um, one of the largest FX brokers called Rational FX. Right.
0: Um,
1: and that's that's basically moving money across borders, um, across markets, across currencies. And what happens there is you can, again, through hedging and risk abatement, you can avoid the fluctuations of currencies, especially when dramatic events happen like the upcoming U.S. election or or UK leaving Europe. Those affect big, giant currencies. And so there's many examples. As I said, for the past five years, I've probably worked with, oh, a dozen or so. You know, at at length, I've even angel invested in a couple. But my areas of special interest in this are cross-border payments and trade finance. And more and more... The world of digital infrastructure and open banking, because the vertical has to go horizontal.
0: Yeah, can I can just ask on, You know, you mentioned previously about the revenue models, because yeah. I think these fintechs
1: are great, but I mean, a lot of them
0: just don't make money, from what I can see. Or am I wrong in this thinking?
1: There's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of imitation in fintech. There's a lot of fintechs that copy other fintechs in other markets, and, and they get they get some quick money. They either get grant money from the government. or they get um, some angel money so they can scale up to, you know, 50 people and they can build tool or uh, a little platform or maybe a data set. Right. And then they can start to get into the media and they can start to change the world where they run into some speed bumps is when they can't effectively scale with they can't scale slash partner with a big institution like a bank or insurer. They take advantage of consumer trust and privacy by not managing you know, the respect of, of people's data. That's a consumer play, obviously. Or when um, the easy money goes away, such as we're faced with right now in, in the emerging recession, when the venture money doesn't come in. And so there are a lot of fintechs that are right now living on bridge rounds that we're just sort of plugging the gap from here to tomorrow. Right. But they're not all going to make it. So you'll see more trade sales. You'll see more wind downs. Um, you'll see some natural churn in the industry. But but look, I just called fintech an industry and it certainly wasn't an industry a few years ago, but it sits very neatly between the big tech and the big bank. It's yeah. neither one, right?
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. How about these banks? I mean, there's a, there's a number of them now, these fintechs, oh, the, Manzos, the
1: Starling's. The so Beats. the digital, yeah, the digital neo challenger bank. I think the space to watch in, that's, in that is um, what's going on in Hong Kong and Singapore, because okay. those, they call them virtual licenses over there. And those propositions are much more robust from day one, and you're bringing in different verticals. There's a couple banks, um, one is called Mox Bank M-O-X, and that's being backed by Standard Chartered, which is, so there's trade finance elements, there's consumer elements, and the technology is, is clearly best of breed. The other one I would mention is Razor, R-A-Z-E-R. That actually is a gaming house, kind of okay. like, you know, Riot Games or Epic Games, you yes. know, Fortnite. And they have around 10 million customers playing their games. And so imagine you put a bank inside of that and then you can do things in the crypto space or you can do things in, you know, we've moved a long way from, uh, you know, when Facebook was selling, you know, cows through and that was only a few, you know, 15 years ago. But now if, if these companies have banking licenses, they can provide savings, they can provide lendings. You know, you can do peer-to-peer payments, but it's, from, it's coming from the gaming world. It's coming from a totally, and those customers are young, they're millennial, they're the sweet spot for investors. And of course, you've got a lot of banking expertise. I, I think another challenge, Ken, to a successful fintech, you need to have some banking heads in the room because it's a very complex regulated space. Technology is not enough.
0: Yeah, interesting. And relation to, I mean, this, this, uh, it's interesting, you mentioned about future trends. You talk a lot about that, where it's going. I mean, yeah. do you see these mainstream banks lasting and surviving?
1: with and they all have this- move fast. They have to yeah. move fast and, and catch up to 2025 because remember, we just jumped forward five years. Yeah. If you look at a big banks balance sheet, it doesn't make any sense right? It's not yeah. a traditional balance sheet. There's not assets and liabilities. There's there's loads of sort of subsidies and goodwills and kind of brand equity in there. And in fact, the share prices of most big banks globally have not moved much since 2008. We've almost been in, in <laughs> suspended animation with quantitative easing and the after effects of, yes. of the big crash of, of the last crash. Now, this crash is not a financial crisis, it's a health crisis, but it's It's forcing the central banks to keep interest rates at zero or below zero, which is not really a normal economic (laughs) circumstance, right? So, however, the fintechs are not getting fresh capital as easy as as they were a year ago. So they either need to partner faster, they need to partner more effectively, or they need to really embed with the banks because the banks aren't going anywhere. The banks are too, many of them are too big to fail. But I challenge the banks to invest more in SME in the small and medium because those companies are still not getting funding from 2008. You know, obviously, they had to bolster their capital bases and pass the stress tests these are the yeah. banks. And, you know, they still cater to the retail and the individual consumer because that's high profit for banks. But banks don't make money from, from SMEs. They make money from big companies and from individuals. So I think an area of fintech, which is super exciting, is fintechs helping SMEs through lending, through credit provisions. And then you'll, you'll see a lot of non-banks that are outside of the regulatory frameworks helping these SMEs just to pay for supplies, pay for employees, pay for running costs. Um, the, the banks have kind of pulled away from that. And I know that they, they don't completely admit to what I'm saying, but I've noticed it living in Ireland and living here that the smes they can't just get you know fresh capital from banks anymore and i i think that's mostly because the banks can't take them on as customers because their legacy systems are too slow to adapt so
0: yeah i agree with you i mean it's I all think... i'm
1: saying ken it's a very dynamic space it, yeah. it it moves fast and we're not you know you can't track it on a monthly basis there are things happening every day around the world and I haven't even mentioned the emerging markets of Latin America, Southeast Asia and Africa, which are super dynamic and they're moving at light speed because there's no legacy infrastructure in those markets. So you can actually build and deploy much faster over there in the, let's say, the lesser developed countries. Incredible. Uh, very interesting, uh, Dan.
0: And it's going back to your area, especially, you know, especially really, it's, you know, you mentioned our cross-border payments, open banking. Yeah. What's happening in this space and where, where, is it, where, where are the trends going?
1: You'll see a lot of propositions uh, where any company can become or act like a bank as long as they have regulatory approvals because the digital infrastructure can help a big company like Google or Apple or Amazon do things like a bank, but obviously they'll lean on a big bank's regulatory license for approvals, but they can do payments, they can do savings, they can do lending, they can issue credit, they can do collections, but other industries if you embed, you can make payments invisible. You can make it embedded. So a big retailer like Walmart slash Asda over here in the UK, they can do a lot of banking activities now uh, without needing, and they can pretty much nip at the, um, the core profit of banks, which I think is payments. So, and again, uh, going back to the big card schemes, of Visa and Mastercard, can, They used to just process payments through card schemes. Now everything's going online through e-commerce. So you're looking at the network effect. So Mastercard and Visa become data networks, not card issuers or card schemes, because we're rapidly moving into a, an era of the Internet of Value, where it's not where money becomes almost invisible, and everyone's. And, and again. I think the biggest issue that I've been focused on and the biggest eye opener of COVID and the acceleration of 2025 is digital identity and the lack thereof. We're still living in a very paper based society, even though we've had the internet for three decades.
0: Yeah, incredible. I mean, I signed up recently. Well, yeah, I suppose when you go to the online fintechs, I think they're quite good. But yeah, if you go to a traditional institutions, I agree with you. I think it's still a very massive amount of paperwork. And, the idea, as suppose, really is we need to get away from all this, I guess. That's
1: what you're saying. Well, I think that to solve digital identity, you need the platform from technology. You need the network from government. And I mean that very, very much so. And that's the network of connectivity that does the, that they should provide that as a service, sort of network as a service. Because for so long in the internet era, the networks have been provided by Google and Amazon. Those guys are commercial, right? So a non-commercial entity like government, should provide the digital network, I think, or at least referee or regulate that. And we know that big tech has not been regulated very heavily or very judiciously. And then the trust and security should come from financial services, both bank and insurance, so that we can provide the economy with credit and risk. So it's you know it's it's the triple whammy of tech, government, and financial services. And that's why I say earlier that fintech is neither a bank or a big tech. It, it sits there neatly as sort of the glue or the, the common horizontal structure there. Um, and actually, uh, one of the things I enjoy a lot about fintech is there's a big community called tech for good. There's a lot of ethical, whether it be ESG or just fairness and inclusion. These people wanted want to make permanent change for the better of all, right? Because for many, many years, banks don't really serve the non-banked, the underbanked. And one of the millennial development goals from 20 years ago now is to, you know, get people into the economic mainstream. And without a bank account, you can't really do that. Otherwise, you just hand-to-mouth living on credits or sort of in a cash-based economy.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. But do you think do you see is going that way? Do you see the government stepping in there and helping
1: out? Well, the, this COVID episode, you know, digital identity has come forward here in the UK there are companies i'll mention mytech mitek that's working on a digital identity scheme there's a unicorn called onfido which was born here in the in london these are doing more than identity verification or converting a piece of paper into a digital document they're actually working on the thorny issue of who you are you know where you are because you know fraud and corruption and theft are happening in digital world now we're long gone the days where somebody goes in and holds up a bank, true, yeah. and um, again, back to my point, banks need sophisticated technology to stop the bad guys, and the bad guys are pretty clever. So. Yeah, yeah. so true, so true.
0: Great, Dan, this is much appreciated for all those insights, fascinating, uh, very exciting to watch the future. How about you, I mean, what's, what's the future hold for you?
1: Uh, right now, um, I'm looking at full-time opportunities in either Amsterdam or staying here in London. Again, it's exciting because, you know, um, I feel like I've been doing this for five plus years now, but man, the opportunities with COVID and waking up to the digital and data, I think we're in the data decade, full stop, the data decade. Like, so there was the internet, then there was the cloud, then there was the mobile. Thank you, Steve Jobs. And now we're in the data decade. So whoever the company is, if they don't have data-led data-first, data-rich, they're just not gonna make it, and they might as well just be a zombie company for however long that lasts.
0: I agree, with you. We need to get to You have to be a, a data-driven culture now, don't you? I mean, in
1: your organization.
0: It's a necessity
1: and an imperative, yeah. Great, Dan. So if people wanna reach out to you, Dan, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, I'm the only person with the first name, uh, Dan, and the surname Feeney on LinkedIn, so that's, sure. that's good, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I'm findable on LinkedIn. I also uh, have the same acronym on Twitter as well. Okay, awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much for those insights and your time today then. Of course. Thanks for having me, Ken.
0: Thank you.